Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today and listening to this recording from the team at Elizabeth Fry Toronto. Today, we're joined by a few members of our organization to talk about the right to housing, what that really means for our community, and what types of services and programs we provide in an effort to meet the housing needs of the women that we work with. We wish to acknowledge this land in which Elizabeth Fry Toronto operates and we're gathered on today. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, Métis, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. Today, this meeting place is still home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. My name is Natalie Carpanche, and I'm the Development and Communication Manager for Elizabeth Fry Toronto. I will be moderating today's discussion along with Kendra. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. As Natalie mentioned, I will be co-hosting today's discussion. My name is Kendra St. Cyr, and I'm the Communications and Fundraising Coordinator here at Elizabeth Fry Toronto. Today, we will be having three guests from the organization joining us that will be leading the bulk of the conversation. We're going to have them introduce themselves. Let's start with Kelly. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Kelly Potvin, and I'm the Executive Director for Elizabeth Fry Toronto. Um, Nalani. Hi, everyone. My name is Nalani Sabanayakam, and I'm the CTI Housing Counselor here at Elizabeth Fry Toronto. And last but not least, Lucy. Hi, I'm Lucy Gudgeon, the Manager of Residential and Housing Programs here at Elizabeth Fry. Thanks for those introductions, everyone. We are excited to be having this conversation for Elizabeth Fry Week 2021 and its theme, Human Rights in Action, specifically the right to housing. Before we jump into the discussion, for those of you who are not familiar with Elizabeth Fry Toronto, I wanted to give you a little background of our organization. Here at Elizabeth Fry Toronto, we work with women who are at risk or have been in conflict with the law. Research actually shows that women are the fastest growing prison population in Canada, though, in reality, they are often convicted for nonviolent or serious crimes. We provide counseling services, community-based programs, and a transitional housing to work with clients and help equip them with the skills, supports, and resources they need. We know from years of this work, women often come into conflict with the law because of their struggle to survive gender-based violence, poverty, and trauma. Many of the women we serve struggle with mental health and substance use challenges, unemployment, racial discrimination, single motherhood, and lack of family support. As an organization, we recognize that these intersections greatly increase the risk of criminalization for women. These systems of repression directly affect women's access to housing. We'd also like to mention that we're having the discussion today during Elizabeth Fry Week, and the theme this year is Human Rights in Action. You know, when we were talking about human rights in action, a pressing matter that keeps coming up for a lot of people is the right to housing. Housing is an integral human right for everyone, and it's not something that should only be afforded to those who are deemed worthy. Every person has the right to housing that meets basic conditions, such as being safe and affordable, accessible, culturally appropriate, and secure. Access to housing without discrimination is a really essential part of the vitality and the well-being of people and communities, especially in Toronto. We hope that today, by taking some time to talk about the challenges and the barriers that women are facing when accessing housing, that we can start to build more awareness about the reality of the housing crisis in Toronto and what that really looks like for the women that we work with. Safe and supportive shelter can unfortunately be taken for granted by some people, while also not even being a viable option for others. We've seen firsthand that there is an urgent need to build more progressive and effective housing solutions in Toronto. 
Now more than ever, we really need to reflect on the realities of the community members' lived experiences and to work to really prioritize the most vulnerable in our community. With that in mind, let's start today's conversation and go to Kelly with our first question. How does our clients' access to housing impact the programs and services that we offer here at Elizabeth Fry Toronto? That's a great question, Natalie. And, and my initial reaction when hearing the question is, how does it? How does housing not impact? Uh, it might even be the, you know, the shorter answer. If you think about the population of women that we serve, um, as Kendra just described, you know, we're seeing women who are on release from an institution or trying to reintegrate. If you can't find safe, affordable housing, your, you know, chances of successfully integrating um, back into the community are going to be, you know, really limited. And then when we look at the part of um, the women who we serve who are maybe in diversion for whatever reason, so their charges have been stayed and they're trying to stay out of the justice system, you know, if you can't, that woman doesn't have safe, affordable housing that meets her needs, it just um, makes the challenge to, you know, staying out of prison or out of the justice system that much more difficult. And I think housing, so many of us take housing for granted. And we think of homelessness as really just street homelessness, when in fact, women are more likely to be couch surfing or staying with friends. But those situations are often situations that, again, might bring them into conflict with the law again. So, you know, if if they have a prior criminal record um, and they're not allowed to associate with certain people as part of, you know, say conditions of coming back into the community, it also might, you know, kind of restrict who whose couch they're staying on or, you know, just... If you, if you think about not having a place of your own because you can't, maybe you can't afford it, you know, what else, you know, how, how are you going to take care of any of your other needs? So our programs try, we try to have a, like, we do actually have a very diverse range of programs that try to meet all, you know, the range of needs from trauma to employment, to housing, to addictions. And, you know, we try to work with women around all of their needs, but really, if someone doesn't have safe, affordable housing, and you're treating their addiction needs, you're not going to really get to any of the roots of of any of the issues, because the primary focus of the woman is going to be, how am I surviving today? How am I, you know, without housing, how am I going to you know, get through this period of time. And, you know, dealing with whatever unresolved trauma is sometimes a luxury that aren't, that isn't afforded to women if they're not adequately housed. So, and I also want to mention that about eight years ago, we did a, Elizabeth Fry Toronto did a housing study where we um, spoke to, I think, 3,000 clients of Elizabeth Fry and ask them what their needs were. And housing was the top of, 
of that study for women who presented with all different types of issues. You know, whether they were reintegrating, whether they were on diversion, whether they were in a trauma program, whether they were uh, in an employment program, that the need for housing was the number one um, response that we got. And it has been, uh, from that time forward, a priority for the organization to um, look for opportunities to provide affordable supportive housing for our women. That's a great answer, Kelly. And, you know, housing really does impact a woman's life in so many different ways. Next, we'll be moving on to Lucy. Lucy, can you talk a little bit about our residential program and the housing needs of the women we serve who are transitioning out of institutions? Sure. Thanks, Kendra. The Phyllis Haslam Residence is a 19-bed residential program that provides housing and housing supports to women who are exiting from both federal and provincial custody. On a federal level, that means we have women in the program who are serving periods of day parole, and we have women who are also serving periods of probation following a sentence. Both groups of women, when they arrive at Elizabeth Fryer coming out of custody, you know, tend to be shaken from their experiences when they arrive here, and it takes a bit for them to kind of acclimate to the community and to our program. One of the first priorities that women have is going to be when they leave us. And that could be six months or more down the road, and it could also be less. For example, we recently had a woman exiting the federal penitentiary, and we had six weeks to work with her. So that's often one of the first things we begin to work on. And recently, I actually surveyed our current clients that we've been working with, and one of the things they said that was very helpful was to begin an introduction to the Toronto housing situation right away. A number of our women who are coming to EFRI Toronto don't originate from Toronto. They originate from other communities. And that can happen for a number of reasons. One that we've seen not infrequently is uh, women who have been transferred throughout the federal institution system and end up arriving in Kitchener, Grand Valley, far from their home communities. But sometimes women feel like their home community doesn't have anything to offer for them anymore. Being in Kitchener, not knowing Ontario, the city they tend to know is Toronto and they relocate here. The first thing that many people uh, find is a big shock about the Toronto housing situation. And many women are not oriented to the difficulties in finding housing in Toronto. So that's something that we spend time explaining to the women and trying to kind of orient them to what the realities of the housing situation is in Toronto and also maybe how we can support them in locating housing. So this might be completing applications with them for supportive housing, getting their name on list for uh, subsidized and RGI housing. And we know that there is a long wait. So for supportive housing and RGI housing, the wait's about the same now. For a self-contained unit, it is around 11 years to access these units. There still is benefit to putting people's names on these lists because eventually their name will come up. And also sometimes new and special projects targeting specific populations arise and, and they could benefit from that. We have had 
some housing programs that we've been administering recently. And those programs are specifically directed towards women who are um, exiting a correctional setting into homelessness. And I think Nilani is going to talk about some of uh, the work she's been doing in that program. Great. Thank you so much, Lucy. Um, so on to Nilani. Uh, can you talk about the Home for Good program and the challenges that you've experienced trying to secure housing options for your clients? I definitely can. Um, Lucy kind of already introduced it a little bit, but Home for Good is a partnership with the City of Toronto. It's kind of one of their projects that's aimed at combating homelessness in the city. And our stream of referrals specifically focuses on women who are exiting an institution into homelessness. In terms of challenges experienced trying to secure housing options, there's no shortage of those, I can say that not just for myself, but even my two colleagues who worked in this position prior to me. I think the biggest challenge they faced initially was finding willing landlords and property management companies that wanted to work with Elizabeth Fry um, Toronto. I think the issue would always be that either they would ask us to explain or if you, if you simply Google our name, it kind of tells you the client population we work with. So it unfortunately would set our clients at a disadvantage even without them even seeing a unit or meeting anyone, they're already set at a disadvantage. Um, we obviously would put clients on social housing lists as well at first, but like Lucy said, the wait, line, the wait lists are so extensive that it's just not a viable immediate option for housing. So we would obviously do it because hopefully at some point their name would be called, but again, we couldn't rely on that. For example, a client who, an Elizabeth Fry client who applied for housing in 2008 received a call last month saying that their name was up. Unfortunately, the agency had lost contact with that client several years ago, so we weren't able to get a hold of them. But that's just an example of how that would work. Other than that, there's obviously a lack of housing stock within the city in general, and it continues to be a lack of available affordable housing. And a lot of the clients we work with are on social assistance, so finding options that they can afford is not easy. It's definitely a task in and of itself. Other things I've noticed that are challenges are poor credit, lack of credit. And I think that just goes hand in hand with the lack of financial education that's kind of just given to the general public. You know, a lot of women coming out do come out with a lot of debt under their name and it stands against them and they get overwhelmed because they feel like they can't address that without being housed, without finding employment, without doing all these other things first. I think the involvement with the criminal justice system is a challenge. Some of the clients we work with there are articles, news releases, things with their name associated that if you Google their name, this is coming up. Again, this stands at a disadvantage before they can even try to get in somewhere. We've had clients whose housing offers have been jeopardized as a result of that. And that is truly unfortunate. But again, it's kind of just goes into, I guess, the systemic bias and stereotypes that exist around women who are, well, not just women, but people who are in conflict with the law. And also gaps in tenancy, obviously women who have been incarcerated for a period of time, there is a gap in their tenancy and they don't know how to work around that, how they explain that without having to divulge information that they shouldn't have to divulge because it has no relation to housing. Um, so because of all of this, we've kind of had to pivot in our approach to securing housing. So we've kind of taken a backseat role and allowed the clients to kind of secure their own housing and the landlord has no idea that they're involved with us and we like it to keep it that way because I don't want to jeopardize the client's right to privacy and confidentiality. Thank you, Nalani. That was um, 
a good oversight of some of the challenges trying to secure housing for some for the women that we serve. And I feel like you touched a little bit on our uh, group question, but maybe Kelly or Lucy, you might want to add a little bit more to this question. What unique challenges do you feel criminalized women as well as women coming out of the justice system faced when it comes to their housing needs? In terms of unique challenges? Correct. I think definitely the stigma of a criminal record is a huge challenge for the women. And one thing that we're finding in the in the days of Google is our tenants are applying for apartments and they're getting Googled and turned down for the apartments. And we recently had an instance actually where a client had signed a lease um, and had a move-in date, had paid her rent. I guess the property owner Googled her post-lease signing and determined her criminal record and actually called the real estate agent who had brokered the rental and had a lot of questions about this criminal record. And then the landlord went so far as to suggest that they were going to contact her employer to make sure the employer knew about her criminal record. And of course, we supported this client and said, you know, this is illegal. We'll get a lawyer. They can't do this. But the client instead just preferred to back out of the unit. They just didn't feel they could take that fight on. And that is a really good example of the kind of stigma that our clients face. And it's happened quite a lot when I just recently did these, just a a small, several small focus groups with our clients. Many indicated that they felt they were getting turned down for their units because their name was being searched. Sometimes their criminal record is sensational. They have sensational convictions, but other times um, it really is just a fact that they've been convicted of a crime. So that deters, and particularly in a very, very competitive housing market, landlords are taking these, you know, taking this opportunity to really do deep dives and background checks. And that's something that our women are really struggling with. And actually, sorry, I do want to add that even using the name of Elizabeth Fry Toronto can flag out to potential landlords that our clients have a criminal record. So we were initially in our project, we blanketed the city with invitations to property managers to partner with us. Literally hundreds of letters were sent out. We did not get any uptake on that. And we realized afterwards, it's actually probably a deterrent. Yes, I can see that. Something that actually Natalie and I were discussing prior to this, how we're sure that just going in with Elizabeth Fry Toronto probably adds to some of the stigma. Uh, Kelly, would you like to elaborate further? Well, you know, I think if you think about who are who the women that we serve are, they're often women who are living in poverty. They're often racialized, you know, and then in a city like Toronto, those two things alone, good luck finding safe, affordable housing for a woman. Add a criminal record and you know, it's next to impossible to find appropriate housing. And that's a really, really sad reality. And one that we really have to find solutions for our women because it's not acceptable to have women who have, you know, maybe been through the justice system, either had their charges diverted or have done their time. If we can't find an opportunity for them to be safely housed, we're not giving them a chance to stay out of the justice system. And that's where there's a big gap. And, you know, where we we see ourselves are the system so broken and we're just stuck in this cycle that, that really, you know, we need to do more advocacy around changing. Yeah, that's a really good point, Kelly. And actually, it goes nicely into our next question, asking about 
what does the, that safe and affordable housing look like for the women that we serve? And if, maybe if you guys wanted to elaborate a little bit on what that means for our clients, because safe and affordable housing isn't necessarily something that everyone has access to. But that gap that you've mentioned between our systemic, the oppression that they're facing versus when they have housing needs. I, I was wondering if you guys could maybe talk about it better, about that safe and affordable housing and what that actually means for our clients. I think, so there, there's an access issue. So, you know, we've talked about the access issue. There's, so in a city like Toronto, where our vacancy rate has been zero, you know, there's a, a supply issue, there's a, an affordability issue. And a lot of the housing that's often offered to people you know, it, it's not in a timely manner, like Naloni said, this one example where somebody from 2008 was contacted in 2021 for a unit. That's not even, <laughs> it's just ridiculous, right? But I think the, the housing that is often offered to, you know, under those conditions is housing, sometimes in Toronto, housing buildings that aren't safe or that have high drug traffic going through them, or all of these, you know, things that could make it really problematic for a woman. For example, maybe you have a trauma history, maybe you have an addictions or a substance use issue. And perhaps those locations even are going to be really challenging for you to, to live in. So that's, that's where the safe part comes where, you know, we're not, there isn't a lot of safe, affordable housing for women in the city. So, you know, I think it's up to us to, you know, create it and uh, make it happen and lobby government for more resources to that end. And well, Lucy, you can probably articulate a little bit better than I did because I, I started talking about this and I get kind of frustrated, right? Because you're asking us to talk to you about all of the challenges and it's just, it is really frustrating. Well, I think when we're looking at housing, safe and affordable often do not go together. So what we find is housing that women can afford, and I'll give an example, and, and even this, like this, for people who may not be aware, but uh, one of our women found a room in a house, and the house was an older Victorian in a kind of iffy neighborhood in Toronto. However, the house was quite nicely maintained and upkept. So this is a room in a house. The kitchen and bathroom are shared. The room in that house was $1,000 a month. That's kind of emblematic of what we're facing when we're trying to house women. And another thing that I really want to indicate too is one of the things about women's housing is trying to find a place that also could be safe for children. So it happens quite a lot that women who have been incarcerated do have children and they may have either left the child with a family member who could care for them or the child has gone into temporary care of a children's aid society. So when women are exiting and trying to build a life for themselves, they're also trying to build a life for their child. So we face a little bit of a barrier there because women can't get income supplements for their child unless they have full-time custody of the child. And they often can't get full-time or even access to the child if they don't have a place for them to live, which they can't afford because they don't have the income supplement. So we kind of get into a situation which is a bit cyclical, and that creates a lot of barriers to reunifying families and also creates kind of this cycle of intergenerational poverty as well. So I wanted to add that. Thank you, Lucy. And yeah, I feel like we often forget about 
that women have unique needs and if they are also looking for housing for their children and making sure that it's in a safe environment for them to be living with their children. So the next question that we had for the group, as you all know, we are currently experiencing a global pandemic. And for those of us that live in Toronto, we are also experiencing a housing crisis. And I hear a lot of people, specifically renters, so excited that the prices for renting has decreased. However, I feel like for the women we serve, they might not be able to benefit from the decrease in the rent. So can anyone elaborate on how COVID has affected the housing needs of our clients and the services we offer? I can kind of speak to that because I started in this position maybe two months before COVID. So March came around and then COVID hit and then I had no idea how to kind of, well, I don't think anyone really knew how to navigate their position in that time because everyone was working from home and it's kind of hard to work from home with clients who are marginalized, don't have access to the internet, can't hop on Zoom and connect with you, probably don't have a phone. There were some clients that I was out of contact with for a few months unfortunately, because of this, because I was working from home. So, and even the clients I was able to get in contact with, again, figuring out ways to support them in a housing search while I'm at home and they're at home and all these viewings are being done online. You can't even see places in person. Things always look better in pictures with special lenses, special lighting, or even in videos with certain filters. Things always look great. You need to see things in person. You need to make sure things are in working condition and those things we're not able to do. So that was was hard to navigate. Um, Initially, yes, there was a lot of vacancies in the city and a lot of those vacancies remained on the market for months and months and months. I kept seeing the same listings listed, but were those great housing options? Probably not. They were, you know, in rundown buildings. They were not well kept. Um, The buildings were not properly maintained. There was probably issues with drug trafficking and other things going on in these buildings. So not everything that was available was something that I would say that the clients would deem as safe and affordable housing. And I think it's important to um, allow clients to have the agency to decide where they would like to live, to have the freedom to decide that. And I think we had a client who was housed in May, rented a room in a house. I did not see this place before this person rented it. And unfortunately, it turned out to be that this house, I don't think was up to fire code. I don't think was properly maintained. I think that housing is a human right. People should be able to live somewhere free from harassment, discrimination, etc. And unfortunately, this house with the other tenants living there was not a favorable situation. And in the end, there was a fire in this house. Um, Nobody was injured. Unfortunately, obviously, all these people lost their housing. And the landlord has kind of just been in the wind, has not taken any accountability. He's kind of been off wherever. And I I also wonder if this client would have taken the housing if there were other viable options for them. And I also think with the pandemic and with the overflow of the shelters and not knowing what was happening, I think they just took it because it was better than being on the street. It was better than staying with other people that maybe was an unsafe situation. So I think COVID-19, although for a lot of people renting or buying houses, maybe it was a good opportunity. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was the same for the clients that we worked with. You know, what you're saying there, Nilani, reminds me of something that we haven't mentioned, which is violence, gender-based violence, because that particular client that you're talking about was really experiencing a lot of gender-based violence in that situation. And that's kind of how precarious housing plays into gender-based violence as well, because women sometimes are forced to remain in housing 
in which they're experiencing violence or return, in our case, women coming out of a custodial situation, um, a carceral situation, they may return to a situation where they were facing violence or control to begin with simply because their housing is unstable, they don't have anywhere else to go. Um, And I do feel this is another way that kind of perpetuates intergenerational cycles of uh, violence, housing, precarious housing, homelessness, and, and possible reincarceration keeps women trapped when they don't have another option. If I'm thinking about the changes to the rental market because of the pandemic, you know, have benefited, I think, people in different socioeconomic brackets than our clients. I don't think that, uh, you know, the difference between an apartment that was going for $2,000 a month is now going for $1,800 a month with uh, fewer people lining up. It's still out of reach for our clients. And I think that's important to remember. And the vacancy rate hasn't gone up enough to change the stigma or people's reaction to the stigma of someone who may or may not have a criminal record, which, you know, if you think about the right to housing, someone's criminal record shouldn't be held against them, protected. It can't be held against you for employment unless, you know, there's certain circumstances or volunteer work or or in housing, it shouldn't be. But people will find ways just to tell you that you're not a good fit if you have a criminal record and you're not the type of person that the landlord wants to rent to. So I wish one of the silver linings of the pandemic was that the rental prices decrease significantly enough to benefit our women, but or the women we serve, but I don't think it has. Do you know what I also wanted to mention is the, I don't believe that this is specific to our clients at all, but it was very interesting how this COVID pandemic actually exposed. The mechanism of the COVID pandemic meant that a lot of people were doing their housing interviews over the phone. And what a number of our women were using real estate agents to facilitate this because there's particular apartment finding websites in Toronto that are real estate agent based. So women that um, had worked hard to secure employment and had the finances and the employment references were using these real estate agents. And then what they were finding is everything was okay over the phone. But when they actually went to the unit and the property manager or homeowner saw what they look like, suddenly the unit was not available or there was a bit of, there were different questions. And what it was exposing was racism. And quite a number of our women experienced that in their housing hunt very directly because people hadn't seen them first. So everything was looking good until they actually saw them. So we did have quite a number of women report that and, and their housing searches went on and on. But I just thought that was you know, we've already known about racism in the, in the housing market, but this was a very clear demonstration because of the use of technology in the initial phases of the house hunt. Yeah, absolutely, Lucy. That's, that's a really good point. Um, we're kind of running out of time, so I wanted to open it up to the three of you if there was anything else you wanted to kind of touch on or something that, you know, you feel is really important for our listeners to know about our clients and the right to housing. I know that it'll probably be, you know, somewhere on our blog, some of the statistics, but just in terms of the cost to incarcerate a woman versus the cost of supporting that woman in community. I think, you know, those costs are, you know, radically different. 
um, somebody can correct me, but I think it's in the the ballpark of $300,000 a year per person to incarcerate a woman federally. And it costs a fraction of that to provide permanent, safe, affordable housing, which will be one of the best determinations about, you know, whether or not someone will stabilize and, you know, can rebuild their lives. If you don't have a place to call home, if you, you know, don't have a secure place to live, the other challenges that you may be facing, you're not going to be able to get to them because you're just, you know, thinking about shelter, it's food, shelter. And if we just keep, you know, incarcerating women who are homeless, racialized, living in poverty, it's not the answer. And, and it's certainly, you know, for people who think about, you know, are really concerned about where their tax dollars are going. I just, you know, would encourage people to, you know, become educated about, you know, what the costs are for incarcerating people versus um, investment in community, which, you know, we at Elizabeth Fry are all about investing in community and keeping people out of prison. So. Yeah, absolutely, Kelly. You know, thank you so much for that. I'm really happy that you brought that up sort of at the end, um, because, you know, as you mentioned, advocating for building better communities and really actually investing in communities is integral work. And it's such a huge factor in how we can work to break that cycle of incarceration and, and trying to keep people out of prison. It's also such a big foundational element of, of how we can increase people's access to safe and affordable housing. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for today. Uh, first, thank you so much to Kelly, Lucy, and Alani for talking with Kendra and I, uh, you know, sharing your stories and experiences and, and also just giving your thoughts on this topic. I know it's a really broad topic and we could probably talk about it for hours and still only scratch the surface. But I do hope that we've been able to shed a little light today on some of the unique needs and challenges of the women that we serve when they're accessing housing, and also to highlight some of the work that we're doing here at Elizabeth Fry Toronto through our housing and residential programs. For our listeners, I would also encourage you to please visit efrytoronto.org to learn more about us, keep up to date on what we're doing, and also to donate to our organization if you're able to. Thank you so much again to everyone who's listening. We really hope that we're going to be able to bring more discussions like this to you in the future. So make sure to check out our blog and see what we're up to. Until next time, thank you again, be well, and stay safe.